You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez, the podcast that offers practical advice and tips on how to run and grow your small business. The How of Business helps aspiring entrepreneurs and small business owners achieve their definition of success and overcome challenges that get in their way. This podcast series focuses on the everyday common business issues, challenges, and opportunities that face the small business owner. So here now are your hosts of The How of Business, David and Henry. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez with you here today and my special guest, Philip Valitza. Philip, welcome to the show. Hi, Henry. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's our pleasure. Let me give our listeners a background on you and highlight some of the things we're going to chat about in this episode. Uh, Philip has been a mechanical engineer and an engineering manager for over 12 years. Uh, that means designing, testing, and building products. He has worked for a broad range of companies from mom and pop small businesses to some of the largest corporations in the U.S. Uh, Philip is the founder of The Product Startup. It's a site and also a podcast that provides a step-by-step -step blueprint for aspiring product creators wanting to bring their ideas to market. He has developed the DIY product development process, and we will chat about that. Uh, along with his mom, Philip immigrated to the United States from Czechoslovakia when he was seven years old with two suitcases and $80 in cash. That's a, a true immigrant story there, and we'll definitely dive into that a bit. Uh, that if they left behind all of their family and almost all of their possessions. His journey and success in the United States is proof that it's possible to create your own luck through hard work. Uh, Philip lives in Houston, Texas with his wife and daughter. And after his daughter was born, he realized that he needed to focus on his passion and the product startup launched soon thereafter. He believes anyone can develop a product using recent advances in technologies and tools and by following the same roadmap that many other companies use to commercialize their ideas. So in this episode, we're going to chat with Philip about his journey, his immigrant journey and how he got to where he's at today. He obviously had a corporate career and then transitioned into being his own boss, so we'll dive into that. And then he's going to share with us, and I'm extremely excited about this, is how do you we go from an idea to bringing a product to market? So that's something I have never done myself, but I get asked that a lot by folks that I chat with. So I'm excited to have Philip on the show. Philip Valitza, once again, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks again, Henry. No, can't wait to talk about all those topics that you mentioned. I'm really excited to be on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for being with us. And so you're in Houston, correct? Yes. How long have you been there? Uh, most of my life, really. Since oh, really? Okay. So about almost 30 years now. So was that where you ended up when you all came from Czechoslovakia? Yeah, that's right. So we were originally we were scheduled to go to the East Coast somewhere with to meet up with relatives. And instead, we were sponsored by a church in Indiana in a little town in Elkhart. And uh, we lived there for about six months and then moved down to Houston wow. when, when a job opened up that my mom could take. Wow. Did you speak English at the time? My mom did because the, you know, the European school system, mm -hmm. they forced you to take more than one foreign language. So uh, English was one of those for her. So she got along okay. And for me, it was completely new to me. Uh, wow. So I, I took an ESL class my, my first year. And uh, since then, um, I've been stumbling my way through the English language. <laughs> yeah, as we all are. <laughs> so that, that was a major culture shock, I have to think, for you. That's an obvious statement. But how did it impact you? For me, for example, when I was a child older than you, when I was uh, 11 years old, we moved to Venezuela for two years. And that was a shock to me. I responded to it very negatively. My brother, on the other hand, loved it. And so everybody kind of reacts to it differently. But how was it for you? How did how did that affect you and your personality? Well, I think, you know, since we left Czechoslovakia, we lived in Athens in Greece for two years while we were waiting to get our paperwork to get to the States. And so uh, by that point, I was fluent in Greek and, child, you know, children at 
that age to learn language really quickly. Mm-hmm. So it to me, it was just a journey. It was just something that mom and I did together. So I didn't really, I don't think I. it was that negative for me. It probably wasn't a huge positive thing just because I saw my mom working two jobs and she was, we're definitely struggling from the financial standpoint. And it, it wasn't fun moving every few months when we first got down to Houston. Uh, but after that, you know, I think things evened out, you know, third or fourth grade onward. I think it was a little bit easier. Yeah. Yeah. So are you saying that because you saw her and how hard she was working and struggling, you figured, what do I have to complain about? Is that kind of the way you looked at it? Well, yeah, I think that was, I definitely saw her put a lot of herself into what she was doing and into, you know, taking care of us and into doing the job and into trying to, uh, assimilate into the culture here. And, and so we, you know, made a rule to just strictly speak English at home. And, mm. and so it was, I can't say that it wasn't fun, but it wasn't anything that it, you know, it was definitely a lot of hard work. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't speak English until I started school, but I grew up in the bubble that was the subculture of Miami. My pu- my parents are Cuban immigrants. So it was a little different in that regard and that it wasn't, I wasn't the one out, one off. I was part of a big community of everybody else was in the same situation kind of thing. Sure. Um, so very interesting. So when did you think I want to be an engineer? Well, that, I, and so I didn't really know what an engineer was until I probably hit middle school. You know, I thought it, everyone was just a scientist that did technical stuff. But I would say the, the first spark was when we were still in Greece and, you know, we didn't have any money and we were, as immigrants tend to do, you, we were sharing you know, one apartment among many families uh, while we were, you know, again, waiting to get our paperwork. And so... I was walking by a dumpster and I found one of those pull behind toys that uh, is designed for children to kind of take apart. It has these oversized bolts and, and nuts and it was missing a wheel, um, or actually one of the axles that holds the wheel on. And so I kind of rummaged around and I found a similar size bolt that was made from metal and, and I just kind of jammed it in there and it worked. And so um, I was able to now pull the truck around behind me and that just created this huge sense of freedom and accomplishment and control over my environment that basically just laid the groundwork for me getting interested in the how things worked and putting you know taking things apart as as I was a kid it's fantastic and so where did you go to to college to study engineering to university of texas in austin Okay, so you're a UT grad. Excellent. And so as you're in college, it still is something that's of interest to you and you really are enjoying it. And what were you thinking at that point? I'll, I'll have a long, successful career in engineering. What were your thoughts back then? I made a mistake. Really? That, so even in school, you thought you made a mistake? Well, because, you know, honestly, because I was, I was very practical. You know, even growing up with my mom in middle school and high school, I was man of the house. And so I was responsible for all the DIY stuff around the house. I just loved doing things hands-on and projects. And, and even though I had no idea how to do them, you'd buy a book or you'd go on, online towards the later part of high school and uh, figure that out. But college wasn't quite like that. You know, there was a, a lot of theory. And so a lot of the classes that were very theory-based, I didn't do as well. And the ones that were very practical, that were project-based, I basically got A's in all of those. So why did you stick to it? Why did you finish you know, because there was, I enjoyed a good part of it, and because I thought that it was something that was that it was a part of me that I had to complete, even though it was really painful. And then once you get to maybe your junior year, which is the year that it really got hard for me, it, there was a bit too late to look back. You know, I was funding most of my way through school, and even with mom's help, again, we just didn't have enough money to try to, you know, discover yourself <laughs> while you're in college. Yeah, you didn't have that luxury necessarily. Right. Of saying, hey, I'm going to start over and change my my major and it's going to take another couple of years. Right. Well, and at the time I was also pursuing a a minor in business and I had a Mm -hmm. really good friend of mine. My best friend was my roommate and he majored in business. And I thought, man, that's what I really needed to go do. Uh, because he uh, he seems to pick it up really quickly, and he's not you know down in the basement with me studying. And I mean, don't get me wrong, the guy's super sharp. He was valedictorian in our school, but he you know he it just was more intuitive to me than engineering. That was some of the theory was just kind of it was hard to conceptualize. So as you're getting past your junior year, senior year, what are you envisioning you're going to do for a career? 
well, I knew one thing that I wasn't going to do, and that was not go into oil and gas because I had no draw to it. I wanted to do something innovative. I wanted to do something that was creative with design. Uh, basically, in my eyes, everything that the oil and gas industry wasn't. So then you graduate and you get yourself a job as a mechanical engineer, I think. Is that the type of engineering you were practicing? Yes. So okay. I yeah, graduated with a mechanical engineering degree and actually worked for IBM. Um, Interesting. Because they were, well, they were hiring engineers. <laughs> mm -hmm. What were you doing for them? Uh, it was a business consulting. Ah, interesting. Uh, so it was my first taste of of business in the in the real world, so to speak, uh, where I got put on to a really small team, and we traveled around the country, implementing these uh, portals for HR departments and customizing them to kind of fit whatever their needs were. So it was it was a really cool opportunity because you got to make presentations to executive level, uh, large you know corporations. And it, it was the rest of your career in a consulting type capacity, or no, what? no, I got okay. I got burned out of the uh, on the travel, and maybe a year and mm. a half into it, I said, you know what, I'm going to go back to engineering. Uh, as much as I enjoy the challenge of business and how fast paced it was, and the the types of problems that we're tackling, and the people that I was meeting, the um, the day to day. I mean, I probably traveled 42 weeks out of the year that year. It just wasn't a, a fit for me. And so now take me to where you decide I want to do my own thing. Did that come over time? Was it something that happened? Share with us that story. Sure. No, it's just, I guess, it's just a byproduct of, of slowly working your way up through the corporate ladder, so to speak, where I've just became more and more frustrated with the lack of creativity. There was definitely a path that you kind of had to travel in there, and uh, most of the larger companies certainly expected you to work within a certain box in terms of, you know, these are your responsibilities and this is what we expect of you. And uh, there weren't that many opportunities to do uh, something that wasn't engineering. And uh, so that's when I first became interested in, in doing my own thing and entered some, like a local business plan competition uh, mm. with, a, with a business plan and and won that and got some money. And then that kind of encouraged me to continue chasing it. What was the business idea? So this was, this was about eight years ago. And that's when maker spaces and hacker spaces were still a bit new. And so the idea was for a local maker space in Houston um, that partnered with small businesses and individuals as well and so small businesses that didn't have a machine shop could go and one of their employees could go and get a couple of their parts modified or or mm. fixed if they needed to kind of like a co-op type place and then it was also a place for individuals to go on the weekends to uh, tinker and and build their own products yeah very interesting so did you actually launch that business or was it just an idea no it was uh it was an idea and i won some uh seed money for it, I guess, just to get things going. And then I went back to some of the stakeholders, like I was uh, speaking to a couple of schools and their STEM programs to come and do some after school activities that were related to that. And everyone basically said, hey, hey, that's great that you won. And I know we gave you a letter of support. But what that really meant was that we're, <laughs> that we're going to support you while you write your grant to get money for yourself. And I thought, you know what, uh, writing a grant is an art um, and that's not something that I really want to get into. Yeah. You didn't want to spend the next couple of years trying to get money at that level. So that was about eight years ago. So how long did it take then before you finally transitioned to starting your business? Uh, really until my daughter was born because okay. I, I climbed the ladder and I eventually became engineering manager and had new responsibilities. Some of them were definitely business facing business development, um, I got to do a lot of the, some of the you know, financial numbers behind research and development and all sorts of other things. And I thought, okay, you know what, this could probably satisfy me for a bit. And so I kind of turned the entrepreneur side off for, for a while and enjoyed you know, being married and um, you know, focusing on other things, I suppose. But then having your daughter, obviously a life-changing event, what was it that it triggered in your mind to say, I, I need a different path. I need something else. P panic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she, she was born and like that day at the hospital, I thought to myself, uh, gosh, I'm 35 and you know, we waited a while to have kids and you know, my wife is probably on her third degree and I've uh, 
again, we're fo- focused on the career. And I thought, I'm 35 now, and by the time my daughter is 18 and goes to college, I'm going to be retirement age-ish, uh, or you know, towards the end of my career, and I'm going to be uh, you know, cursing myself for not doing anything about it, and I need to get off my rear end like today. Okay, so it was panic, not, not a financial panic, as you were doing well financially. It was panic that I'm going to end up at that point, looking back, regretting that I didn't do what I really wanted to do. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because until yeah. now, I kept, like I said, I kept going through my career and advancing and money was good. I was making a comfortable six figures and, you know, the, the work was a bit less stressful. And it, in theory, you could just kind of flip the switch and, and coast. Yeah. So did you transition to starting your business or did you quit your job and start your business? Tell me about that period. Yeah. So that day I vowed to say, okay, well, I'm going to do something about it. And, you know, until then I hadn't really also because I never had that baby. And uh, I felt like everyone that I talked to that had a startup or a small business they started felt so passionately about this one niche that they just chased it and it just became their thing. And I never had that and I, because I saw opportunity everywhere and I thought all sorts of things were possible. And so I could never really pin anything down. And so uh, what I decided to do was just create a site that helped people bring their products to market because that was my skill set. And that was also what what my friends asked me about, you know, hey, I have this idea and I want to get on Shark Tank. Uh, how how can I do that? And this is the product startup. That's right. Yeah. And, and so did you but did you start it while you were still working? Uh, yeah. did, was there a transition period there? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was working at the time and I was just creating content at night. I remember coming home again, daughter was born and my wife had some complications post-pregnancy and I was you know, feeding the bottle and changing the diaper. And then you've got <laughs> about two hours or two, you know, between feedings and diaper changes. And so I would just, just try to hammer some stuff out in a notebook and get some content down. And that's actually a, a valuable time management tip that I learned is to limit myself to a block of time for a certain task because otherwise my engineer brain takes over and you know I perfection is then you know perfect is the enemy of the good I guess right yeah no I, I understand that that's one of my challenges so how long before you then resigned from your job and made this a full-time thing yeah so that wasn't really intentional I planned on just kind of working my full-time job as long as possible, you know, with the benefits and everything and, and just trying to do both until one would eventually break. You know, my, my idea was that I'm going to, I'm going to try to do both ways as, as much as I can. And it was kind of decided for me maybe about a month ago. So we're talking about, you know, 16 months after I had the first thought, uh, the, the company that I worked for went, uh, belly up, the you know the oil and gas industry is suffering a a huge uh, recession and uh, so I back earlier I said you know I would never work for the oil and gas <laughs> right. industry so Houston is dominated by the oil and gas industry and when I came when I came back after IBM and I desperately wanted an engineering job it kind of just I said okay well why not I'm gonna be near mom and you know Houston is a low cost of living city and. Uh, the the salaries were pretty good for engineering, so I thought, why not? I'll I'll just kind of I'll I'll give it a chance, so to speak. And uh, it got sucked in and never left. <laughs> yeah, I was I was just gonna say that you got sucked into that Houston vortex of the oil and gas business. Yep. All right, so the decision got made for you. They went out of business. I imagine though it still has to have been stressful and and to finally now because you did not go and find another job. You decided this is at a point now where this is my full time focus is the business. Yeah, no. So it um, it was stressful in a sense because I've never had so much freedom before to choose what I want to do. And I'm actually still kind of battling that in, in some ways because I've always made the right financial decision, especially, again, grow, with my background growing up as a kid. I saw how much uh, finances stressed out uh, my mom and, and how much how much money is really an impact to your day to day life. And so a lot of the decisions I made were the prudent financial decisions, but weren't necessarily anything that uh, that I could relate to, you know, that I really love doing. Are you a person that then suffers from never feeling secure enough financially? No, I, I have to say because of the, the the oil and gas industry has been really good to me. You know, my career was really good to me. The people I've worked with were, were good to me. My wife and I have had similar upbringings and so we both lived below our means 
paid off the house before we were married, you know, that type of thing. So it was when it finally came, I, you know, it was one of those trains that you see coming six months prior and it finally, you know, landed on your station and you just got your bags and and got on. Um, Very interesting. So the other question I want to ask you is about how you think being an immigrant and going through that whole process how what are the, some of the things you think specifically have influenced how you went about your career and now how you apply it to business? What are the some of the things besides the obvious, besides the work ethic and all that? Everybody has that, I think. But what else do you think? Is there something that stands out that you bring to it that you think that's because I went through that process? Well, my mom would probably say the resilience. And I say my mom is mm. because every time I come to her with a problem, she says, remember, I left Czechoslovakia under threat of being imprisoned with $80 and two suitcases. So how significant is the problem that you're coming to me now, really, you know? And mm. it, oh, obviously her words were a little bit different, but um, <laughs> it, 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 it certainly has some perspective. And so I, I would say resiliency. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. That resiliency and the perspective that, okay, yeah, this is, this is a big problem. However, stop, let's put it in perspective. Right. Absolutely. And we've never been as close to being on the street as we were the day that we landed. So every day that we've spent in this country, it's just been in one direction and we've been going up and now mom's almost ready to retire and she's got a couple investment properties and things like that, that, um, you know, are good for her. And so she's, she hasn't been here long enough to have the 401k nest egg and all the other things that people enjoy. But, um, We've accomplished a lot in the last 30 years. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to put it. All right, let's let's get into some of the questions on bringing a product to market. So let's say I have an idea for a product, and we're going to talk about these things at a summary level, obviously, but where do I start? What do you recommend as far as the DIY model goes? And again, DIY stands for do-it-yourself. Where do I start? Yeah, so I think the... The place to start is the logical place most people start, and that's just try to throw up a bunch of ideas on the board. And some people usually just have this one idea that is a is a brain worm, so to speak. It's just been kind of in there, and you can't get it out. I would encourage people to just throw up a bunch of ideas first, and then you know, do all your creative activities first, and then evaluate the market. You know, go and, and, and validate and see what the barriers to entry are. And do you need to do, for example, any testing or any regulatory approvals like FDA, for example? Or um, are you going to have issues with suppliers or logistics or things like that? And, and then you can kind of help start evaluating those. So one of the things I've always been challenged with and I find other people are is that when you're vetting these ideas – a lot of it, you have to be careful who you ask for input on because you, certainly you can get that whole group of people who are risk adverse and they can't even imagine that you would try something like that. But you want you want some valid feedback. So do you have any tips or advice to as to who you share the idea with to get some of that input and help you vet the ideas? Yeah, so I obviously have conversations with my family about those, but like you said, I don't I can't take their their advice as data. So back when I said validate the market, all of that is just a go, no go decision that you can kind of do yourself without any input. Once mm. you get to the next stage, which is, you know, creating a prototype and then having some conversations with people, you know, validating your consumer needs. Um, that's when you really need to go and talk to your target market and have one on one conversations with you know 15 to 25 people. Okay. All right. So the process then is you validate a market for it. And then you, you, you decide to go, no, go gate there, you prototype. And that's really when you put it in front of some potential target customers to get that valuable feedback. Did I get that right? Yep. That's right. And when I say prototype the concept, I mean, literally a sketch or a 3d model or, um, a mock-up, um, something that is physical that you can show somebody else and they get what you're saying without you having to use words. Yeah, and that's and that's part of what you talk about that's become so much more accessible in today's with today's technology. But talk to us about that. How how do you build a prototype and what are the some of the things that today's technology allows us to do? Right. So everyone knows of 3D printing. Uh we've been hit on the head with that for the last five or plus years, ten years. I've got a three D printer around the house. Um 
I think it's a bit overcomplicated for what we all really need whenever we're starting out. You know, even in the companies that I've worked for where I have access to really high-tech equipment, the, the concept prototypes that we build are literally like cardboard and popsicle sticks and um, using reusing existing products. You know, my favorite is to go into a dollar store and just Frankensteining something from things that I can find. And you still think that that at least initially is a better way to communicate an idea? Uh, I think people really respond, again, to something physical or something that they can hold or touch um, or interact with a lot better. Uh, If you just have a sketch at that point or a 3D model, that's fine too. When you're having these one-on-one conversations with with people, it's nice to just um, sit with wherever you're at and have them just talk about their, their problem and then you can kind of show them your model without sending something, you know, online or, or, you know, a PDF or something. Do you find that if it's something that's too defined or too already made in the case of something that would be generated by a 3D printer, that that limits then people's imagination or constraints the, constrains the conversation? Yes, absolutely. You know, that's the, there's a right and a wrong time to show that. And that's not in the beginning. You know, the, the goal of these conversations, whenever you're validating your market is to ask the, the five whys. I'm, I'm sure that you've probably talked about some of those in your podcast before. I, I don't think we have. So go ahead and tell us what those are. Okay. So here's an example of the five whys in action. Uh, you basically, what it is, is you just want to dig down to the heart of the problem and just keep digging until you just can't dig anymore. Um, an example of this is you think that you need to maybe invent scuba gear for Boston Terriers. Uh, you, you start talking to your buddy who goes and scuba dives in, um, in Costa Rica, and he says, yeah, you know what? I have to bring my Boston Terrier with me every time I go scuba diving, and I, there's no equipment out there for him. And so, so you say, okay, well, why do you need to bring your Boston Terrier with you? Well, because I love scuba diving and I do it all the time and I don't want to leave him alone. Okay, well, why do you leave him? Why would you be leaving him alone? Well, because there's no place to leave my Boston Terrier on shore. Okay, so this is really more of a, a problem of not having doggy daycare accessible than it is creating scuba gear for your Boston Terrier. Got it. So it's about asking enough questions to get to what the root problem really is that needs to be addressed. Right. Yeah. It's not about having a faster horse for your horse and buggy. It's about inventing a car and you really need to ask more questions. Otherwise, you'll be left with a superficial answer first. Yeah, that's that's great. That's great input. So the other thing that popped into my mind is when you're when you are prototyping, when you are getting that feedback, how do you then how do you balance this idea that There are some things that people don't know that they can use or want or those types of products or inventions versus something that's like, oh, yeah, that makes this thing easier. How do you separate those two types of ideas? Yeah, so uh, what I think that you're asking is, for example, Steve Jobs brought products to market that we didn't know we wanted. That's right. Okay, and, and how do you come up with those types of ideas? Well, how do you validate them in those cases what, what approach do you take? Because it's not the traditional prototyping approach, or maybe you're saying that it is. How, how do I move forward to validate that uh, this will be received well by the market? You Basically, you sell the benefit, right? You're not selling the features or the specifications or what it looks or smells like. That's just there to help the conversation move along. Um, you're, once you dive down to the five whys or four whys, you say, then you then you really have a really good understanding of the problem, and so you can kind of form a product around it or a service around that. And as if the customer sees that you're solving that pain point, and it's an urgent pain point, they don't really have any expectations on that. If they see that you have a you can bring in a solution. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, let me ask you, I wanted to ask you also about patents. Uh, I know very little about patents. I've never gotten one myself, but but I certainly have some broad knowledge about it. What I know about it is that, A, it's hard and expensive to get one, and B, you, you have to defend it. Uh, but speak to patents. When is it appropriate? When it, What's the right time to think about getting a patent on an idea? Right. So firstly, I have to say that I'm not a lawyer, right? That's so obligatory. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, neither one of us are attorneys. Uh, this is not legal advice. Um, I've seen a lot of weak patents, and I've seen a lot of 
weird things patented that are like laws of science in this situation, you know, this law of physics underwater. And so, first of all, we have to recognize that the USPTO, the U.S. Uh, Patent and Trademark Office, doesn't uh, apply consistent rules in terms of what a novel idea or what someone that is uh, experienced in the field would normally uh, you know, come up with. And so, that's the number one challenge, as you said. It's, it's difficult to get patents out there because depending on the court that you apply the patent to or the examiner that looks at your patent... Um, they may they may grant a patent when maybe it, it has too much prior history or you know it, it might not be valid. That's one of the I guess major hurdles that I've got personally. And then the second one is that you know defending it is another another issue too. You know one of the things that you can do to if you're not sure if you need a patent or not is to apply for a provisional patent. Mm-hmm. And what that basically does is for a few hundred dollars if you do it yourself versus maybe a couple thousand dollars if you hire a patent attorney, you can put in a an application that says that you will apply for the full patent within a year. And what that does is give you that patent pending status that you can stamp on your product and allows you to test the market. So if the market comes back favorable, and then in theory the market will pay for that full patent application for you. Because you'll basically be selling product under the patent pending moniker, and um, you'll be able to hire an attorney to finish up the patent application. So, two questions on that. First of it, obviously, it's a marketing uh, strategy. Am I freezing out others that might have thought of the same thing, or am I giving the idea away in my patent design? Which one is it, or is it a little bit of both? Really, it's both. You know, that's part of the whole patent process. That's how it works: is this disclosure that. Um, you know, patents are supposed to benefit the public or the, you know mankind, and so you have the right to uh, sell your invention protected for X number of years, and after that, it becomes public domain. And so, part of that deal to the inventor is that hey, we'll protect you for that time, but after that, it has to be public. And uh, the whole process is making it public in the beginning, so um, you know people people will see that you're you're creating something but honestly people will see that you're creating something regardless of you uh, submitting a pattern or not you know the minute you throw up your website it's yeah. there right but i could argue that at least it's not until that point that people start reverse engineering my my idea right the patent uh, often gets filed in advance of that but i guess the timing is important so let me ask you this in your personal experience uh, when you're developing an idea where do you bring in patents or if you don't Right. So in my experience, I would, I would wait until it's kind of a two-part answer. I wouldn't bring in a discussion of a patent until I've validated that the customer is ready to, uh, to buy this product. That you've had conversations about the, you know, this new product, and you've got enough data back from the market to say, yeah, we can invest more money into this. Mm-hmm. Um, you maybe you can apply for a provisional patent application, but I definitely would not. Uh, try to get a full patent until you know that the design is sound and that's going to take time and that's the whole kind of that's the whole role of the provisional patent application is for you to investigate the manufacturing side of it and talk to even more people you know you now your funnel has grown even bigger because you're having to speak with suppliers and maybe retailers and all sorts of other people and so you want that protection but before then it's I think it's a bit premature. I think most people get into that mindset that they have to spend all this money up front with a patent when in reality you have to just test your your market and make sure that you're developing something that people want. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so I've got an idea. I've developed it. Maybe I have a prototype. I may have gotten a provisional patent. And now, of course, one of the typical obstacles is I need money to bring this to market or to develop it further. So speak to us about your, your experience finding investors for a product idea. Right. So that's probably my top question that I get asked is where do I find somebody rich to fund my idea? <laughs> oh yeah. I have that question. <laughs> <laughs> and and I imagine you probably give them the same answer is that ideas really aren't worth a whole lot. It's the execution where you're adding value. And I think in products is it's especially so because as you go through the process, you're de-risking the the product. Uh, by having conversations with potential customers, by 
detailing the design by speaking to manufacturers and creating a, a design that can be manufactured at a certain price, you're slowly, you're kind of chipping away at this giant block and, and creating the elephant, so to speak. And, and that's a lot of the value that investors are looking for. The idea has very little value. And so I encourage people to take their ideas as far as they can uh, on their own before talking to anybody else about them, or I should say before soliciting outside investment. Right. So I, I need to develop it right short of, or even at the point where it's almost on the shelf before an investor is going to be interested. Is that what you're saying? I think so. I think most investors, they're going to ask you, how big is your market? You know, how big is your audience? How many units are you going to sell? What are your projections based on? Why do you think that? What is your unit cost? How many units a year is that based on? And all these questions that they're going to ask, you won't really have answers to until you go through the process. Um, otherwise, why would someone blindly just give you fifty, a hundred thousand dollars to go chase a dream? You know? Yeah. All right. So explain to me what you and the product startup, your business, where you come in, how you assist people with this whole process. Well, so most of it is just through education because I really love talking about this type of stuff and I like talking to small business owners about how they brought their products to market. And so I would say probably 80%, 70% of what I do is just content for the website and podcast and helping people to kind of navigate this process on their own because a lot of what you'll find online now, for example, invention kits and things like that that people will pay for has some of the same information. You know, people have been burned in the past and they feel like maybe they, they can't trust anybody else uh, to, you know, through on these late night commercials to deliver what they're looking for. And so what one of the main reasons of building the site was to kind of de demystify that process. So you share that knowledge there. What, what are the components then that people pay you for for that next level of assistance? Yeah, so the next level is either group coaching where we do a weekly call and, and people will call in for an hour and it's limited to a pretty small class size and we talk in detail about a particular topic and everybody kind of has some time in the hot seat. And then there's also some one-on-one -on -one coaching time for that. What I don't do anymore is freelance product design unless it's a long-term contract um, and I'm mainly working with my previous employers on that. Okay. So it's, it's group, uh, coaching sessions. Are, is everybody in the same phase or when you, when you start a group, are they at the beginning of the idea or is it all over? Yeah. So I try to group them at least into people that haven't done anything before and they're, and they're just starting out and to, along with, uh, maybe a group that's more along with their idea. They're probably a small business owner already, or they've already have a few products on the market. Okay. All right, so summarize for me. We've talked about a lot of the components of it, but just briefly summarize for me again. If I have an idea, where do you think I should start? Where do I go? Obviously, your site is one of those resources, but at a high level, what's the process for me from idea to potentially taking it to market? We talked about, obviously, validating the, the idea and validating the market. That's the first step you recommend, correct? Correct. Then some level of prototyping, whether that's a physical prototype or not, it depends. But then you're going to go to that particular audience who might be the buyer of this thing and validate it with them, correct? That's right. And then where do you go next? So after that, you should have a sort of clear idea of what the product will look like. And I say sort of because you're going to get some noise. The data that's going to come back from the, the 15 or 25 people, some of it will be unified and some of it will be all over the place because everybody has their own favorite color, right? And so what you'll have to make some decisions based on where you think that you want to take the product, where you see the market going and need to apply some of that, you know, that leadership that your company is going to need uh, to say this is the direction that we want to go. And then you alluded to the fact that then as you get move forward with sourcing and suppliers, there's going to be ideas that come from that. Well, we've seen somebody do it this way or no, we can't do that piece this way, but we can do it this other way. And that influences the design further. Is that right? Right. So, yeah, after you speak to your customers, you'll, you'll work with an engineer or product designer to come up with a design and then create a functional prototype. And this is one that's going to set you back a little bit more, but it will basically imitate the look and feel of how your product should work and function. And 
that will be another point where you come back to the people that you spoke with to say, hey, this is what I heard you say. Is that right? Because until now, you may be talking with, with air quotes or with, with your concept prototype that maybe wasn't fully fleshed out, but now they get to see the final thing in action. And it's the last point where um, you can make some serious changes and have the customer kind of validate them. Mm-hmm. And and then, like you said, that you know the next step was talking to manufacturers and then designing it again for manufacturer, and that has a whole layer on top of it because you, now you're designing for a certain cost. And in your groups, you help throughout that whole process. What about then now the the marketing aspect, trying to get it either the idea sold or someone to take it on or get an order or bringing an investor. Do you help with that phase of it as well? Well, in terms of guidance to say, hey, this is what I think that you should do based on other products that are similar in the market or that I've you know worked on in the past. You know, I think it's very hard to say this is exactly the the path that will work for everybody, uh, just because there's so many variables. You know, you asked about funding models, for example. I think self-funding up until that point is probably the best. Personally, I had really good luck entering business competitions and things like that, where you can win uh, some amount of money. That's not a huge sum of money, but it's certainly enough to to keep things running. And also, you know, using friends and family that believe in you, because at that point when you don't have a product. Uh, people are going to be looking to you. And so, you know, you'll have to put yourself on the line there and your reputation, but that's probably the best way to find funding. Yeah. And crowdsourcing obviously is playing another big role in this area as well, right? It is, but I think crowdsourcing really wants to see that you've already gone to the next stage where you've contacted the manufacturers and you've got a unit cost and everything's lined up and maybe you've even made the first batch. Uh, People are, are getting a little bit wary of crowdfunding because of so many projects that haven't funded because Mm -hmm. it is complex to get funded and typically uh, the deliveries run six months past the the funded Kickstarter or Indiegogo campaign so people aren't as as likely to just throw money into the pot unless you they've seen you already be successful on some other project yeah that's a great point so what do you see uh, Philip, as the, the the future, where where do you see this all going? Obviously, the technologies around things like three D printers are evolving; it's becoming more affordable. But what else do you see on the horizon that's really going to impact how people bring an idea to market? Well, okay, so w- w- I definitely want to cover all the technologies that have helped us get to where we are now, and just in really broad brush terms, like until recently, we haven't had access to consumer data in the volume that Facebook and Twitter allows us to explore analytics of people, you know, looking at ads and things like that. I mean, you're able to really target some very specific audiences with that. And in the past, that was only available to some of the credit card companies and merchants that had that data. So that's, I, and I think that trend is going to continue to push out. You know, the analytics is going to get even more uh, granular. Rapid prototyping equipment, you know, we talked about 3D printers. Uh, there's laser cutters, there's, you know, CNC routers, there's all sorts of equipment that's just uh, in its infancy now. For example, printers that will create custom electronic boards that, you know, so you can prototype a really short run of an electronic component. All those tools are just getting started. Basically, the interfaces for those tools are getting um, built so that it's easier for you and I to use without any training. Um, the tools to create 3D models and designs are becoming easier, like uh, SketchUp, which was formerly owned by Google, which is a 3D modeling tool, and uh, Autodesk that owns some uh, 3D and 2D drafting applications has, have released their own free programs to create these 3D models that, again, are easier to use. So those tools are going to continue to kind of go in that direction. Yeah, it's, it's exciting stuff. No, absolutely. You know, and e-commerce is the same. And I'm sure you talk about it on your show, you know, 10 years ago, um, well, even longer than that, 15 years ago, when I was in my dorm room and I was selling my iMac online, I had to use eBay. Um, <laughs> but now we get access to Shopify and it's integrated with Stripe and, and you don't even have to rely on PayPal anymore. And there's just so many options now that are turnkey, Again, for you and I, with no training or minimal training that the vendor provides, we can hook up a site and get running in you know less than a week. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. All right, I could talk about this forever, but we'll start to wrap it up, Philip. Um, keys to your business success is the question. We talked about your your resiliency and that work ethic. What else do you think has been a key to your 
early success in business? You know, I really can't say that. I have to say I lean on my work ethic more than I should. I brute force a lot of solutions than I should. It's been my demon. It's the other side of the of the blade for me. You know, it's helped me a lot, but it's also been uh, something that's dragged me back because uh, I, I, I will revert to just working harder than anybody else. And that's necessarily not the right way to go. I think key to success is just being open enough to to ask questions when you don't understand something and reaching out to people and finding mentors that have done what you want to do and and trying to work with them and um, you know offering your services in trade or whatever it is to get them on board. So uh, so you're not in this alone and you feel like you know you're getting some help. Yeah, that's great insights. On the on the point of just trying to work harder than the next guy, what what are some of the things you've tried to do to mitigate that or get better at that? Back when I talked about when I was giving my daughter a bottle and changing her diaper, I've set time limits now on some things. So I'll race myself on tasks. It sounds really silly, but I, I've had to take it to that level because I'm so detail oriented and such a perfectionist with some things. And and I'm a systems guy, meaning I will work five hours to create a automated system to do something if and instead of like just spending the fifteen minutes to do it manually. Um so just because I don't I hate rework and I hate uh, redoing tasks. Right, but the great thing about that is then that puts you in a position to be able to delegate that to someone else, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I, I tend to just automate them. I'll set up some sort of a software or, or, a, or a macro or whatever it is um, to just to not ever have to do it again. But again, coming from an engineering mindset where I, w- I come from shaving seconds off of tasks and you know lowering the cost of products and things like that, I, I easily revert to that. Um, so... I think putting a time limit on tasks has been a, a huge help for me personally. Yeah, that's huge. Uh, re- related to that, one of the things, because I suffer from the same issue, but my business partner, David Begin, has helped me a lot with that. This philosophy of 80% is usually good enough. It doesn't Everything doesn't have to be 100%, at least by my standards. And so letting go of some of those things that don't have to be done to 100%, and that's okay and accepting that. And that's that's been a struggle for me, but I'm getting better at it. Well, you know what? We need to start a support group because my, <laughs> my uh, you know, my 80% is probably some other people's 100%. And that's a good point. My wife tells me that all the time. And I say, but I feel like such a slacker or someone that's uh, putting out poor quality product if I do anything less than my 80 That's exactly my it. Because I, you know? I always look at it. Whatever I produce, whatever it is, it represents me. Yep. And therefore, I want to do it to the best of my abilities. Yep. But what I'm starting to understand is what it really means is there are certain tasks that do not really do not require being at 100%. And it's a matter of understanding what those are and letting go of those or delegating those. And the ones that I do focus on, I continue to do those at my standard. Absolutely. And you know, you touched on a really great point, delegating. So I've, my wife is 10 times the better writer than I am because I'm a technical writer and that's what I've been doing my whole life. And so writing a blog post for me is just the most painful thing. Um, and so I'll delegate some of that stuff to her as I'll, I'll write a post and I'll ask her to edit it and she'll edit it in, uh, you know, five or 10 minutes. And, and there's all sorts of people that you can, you know, call for online. You know, we talked about all these steps along the way that, you know, people struggle with and there's all sorts of experts online that you can get help with. Absolutely. All right. A couple more questions and we'll wrap this up. Uh, Philip, is there a, a book that you've read recently that you would recommend to our audience? Yeah, so I, I think there's two, and I'll say really quickly. So one is called Think Back. It's a deck of cards that um, helps you train your creativity. And we didn't really get into that uh, that much on this show, but there's multiple ways of doing that. I think creativity is a muscle, and you need to work on it every day. So I don't believe that you know someone is born creative and the uh, other people aren't. It's just, uh, again, what, what you use in daily life. And so this deck of cards called Think Back by Michael Michalko, is available on Amazon. It's like 10 bucks and you can pull a card out of the deck and it will tell you to do something specific with an idea. For example, you know, evaluate, use this as an intuitive method for ideas that you can evaluate with a simple yes or no, flip a coin, heads is it yes, tails is it no. If you feel comfortable with an assault, that's your decision, blah, blah, blah. And it kind of leads you through this thought process and there's, you know, 50 plus cards in that deck to help you do that. 
Very interesting. I love that. And definitely, I think we'll need to have you back on another episode to talk just about creativity. I can talk about that for hours as well. Um, and so was there another book or was it just to think back? Deck, no, no so a- the, and the other book is actually a, a personal a struggle of mine, you know, now, now that I was laid off recently and I had to figure out what I really wanted to do and how I wanted to spend my time. I found uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl to be really helpful. And it's basically the, the premise is that there have been a lot of people that have survived uh, POW camps just based on their mindset we can all, I think we can all pick up something from that. I certainly have. Excellent. Thanks for those recommendations. And we'll have a link to those on the show notes page and you can find those at the how of business.com. Philip, a uh, last parting piece of advice to our audience who are either looking to start a business or maybe have a business, an idea for a product rather, or have an existing business they're trying to grow. That's thoughts for, for that audience. Yeah, so my thought is just don't give up. It is a difficult uh, path and get help. Please get help from somebody. Get uh, you know, get an accountability partner, email a buddy once a week to say, hey, this is the progress that I'm making. Get a mentor from your local SBA or SCORE um, or SBDC uh, council. Just find somebody else that will kind of help you and keep you accountable because it is a long path. Uh, but it's totally worth it, and it's it's super rewarding to see one of your ideas hit the store shelf, or you know, to help change people's lives through a product. Fantastic advice. I happen to be a score mentor myself, so appreciate that. Very good. Uh, where can our listeners find out more about you and the product startup? Yeah, so just go to theproductstartup.com, and from there you can find links to the podcast, and you can also reach out to me through there for social media, or uh, you'll find my email on there as well. Wonderful. Philip, thanks for spending this time with us and sharing all this valuable knowledge. Thanks again for having me on the show, Henry. It was my pleasure. Our pleasure as well. Folks, thanks for listening to this episode of The How of Business. If you're listening to us on iTunes, we would welcome and thank you for subscribing to our show. And we look forward to having you on the next episode of The How of Business. Thank you for listening to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez. We hope you found practical ideas to help you start, manage, and grow your business. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a comment on iTunes and go by LevanteBusinessGroup.com and learn more about Levante's resources to help you with your small business. Until next time, thanks for listening and go live your dream.